You're listening to the Vet Chat NZ. We're a local podcast hosted by vets and chatting to industry experts about the hottest topics in animal health. We hope you enjoy listening. G'day everybody. Welcome along to another episode of the Vet Chat. I'm Matt Wells. Today we are going to talk calf health and specifically passive immunity, colostrum, all of that sort of stuff around making sure that the calves get the immunity that they need, I suppose. And we're very lucky, actually. We've got a very special guest, our first international guest um, <laughs> on, the, on the show today, Katie Denham. Um, so welcome along, Katie. How are you? Thank you. Yes, I'm good, thanks. We're working against the odds and time zones at the moment, but we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've just been to a barbecue on a Sunday evening and I'm sitting here on a Monday morning. I'm kind of fueled up on, on caffeine and you're fueled up on probably red meat and potentially other things. <laughs> but So between us, somehow we'll make it work. I'm not always the best morning person, so yeah, I'm kind of intrigued to see how this will go. But um, but no, it's, it's good to see you. As I mentioned, you're an international guest and you're an international expert really these days on, on calf health. So the listeners that don't know Katie, you've probably picked up already there's an accent there. It's a, it's a pretty mixed sort of accent, isn't it, Katie? You've got sort of background <laughs> Very in muddled, all yeah. sorts of... My parents are Irish, yeah, and yeah. I was brought up in South Africa. It's been a lot of time in Hamilton, actually, though. So, yeah, yeah. So after you graduated, didn't you? You worked for for Anexa for what? How long were you there for? About eight or ten years, mm-hmm. or so. Fifteen. Jeez. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> more, more than I thought. Yeah. So, and actually, would both your kids be Kiwis? Yes, both my kids are Kiwis. Yeah, born in New Zealand. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got a really good strong tie, but you are back in the University of Glasgow now. You got out of clinical practice through an accident more than anything else, didn't you? Yeah. Which, um, yeah, sort of injured your hand doing a carving and um, it was your scaphoid bone, wasn't it? Yes, and it was. It felt like a career-ending injury at the time, but it really opened a lot of doors in terms of I did, mm. then did a master's in epidemiology at Massey and... I've never really looked back, so every cloud has a silver lining, as they yeah. say. Yeah, I don't know if you can quite call it a happy accident. It probably wasn't very much fun at the time, but but it's kind of yeah, as you say, it's sort of you know, one of those horrible cliches about you know when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, or <laughs> maybe limoncello or gin and tonic or something. Like that, but, <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, so I mean, it's worked out, and now you're actually even heading towards a PhD at um, Glasgow University and, and kind of giving back and training undergraduates and, and post-grad students over there at Glasgow University. So, so yeah, gosh, every time I see new information or new stuff about calf health, it seems to have the name Denim somewhere involved with it. <laughs> That's good to hear. So let's kick into it. If you were to, I guess, define what we need to achieve, you know, what exactly do we need to do to get this right? Because I suppose in, in really simple terms to, to make sure that we have the healthiest calves possible. Yeah, so there's really two main sort of areas of focus. The first mm. is colostrum management and in particular things like that the cows produce enough volume of colostrum, which is an emerging sort of research area, that they produce as high quality colostrum as they can. And that, that means that, that it has to be really high in antibody and low in bacteria. 
because mm. if it's really high in antibody and actually high in bacteria, the bacteria stop the calves from being able to absorb the antibody at the gut level. Mm. And mm. then the other aspect of um, this is, of course, that you've got to get this high quality colostrum of high volume into the calves. And to do that, you have to do it really quickly, mm. certainly within the first 12 hours of life. And you have to give them 10 to 15% of their body weight in colostrum. And you can measure how successful you are at achieving that mm. by taking blood samples from calves. So it's no good just to get the colostrum where you want it in terms of quality and volume. You also need to get it into the calves and to measure mm. how well you're doing that. So it's a kind of multifaceted and I think really interesting area. And it's done pretty poorly, actually. Um, well, that's the thing. I mean, it sounds relatively simple, doesn't it? You know, I mean, if you really break it down, all we've got to do is just get good quality stuff into the cars as quick as possible and get enough of it in. And yet, yeah, you're right. I mean, we screw it up a lot, you know, or nature screws it up quite a bit. I mean, we're, what sort of numbers are we talking these days? I, I know certainly when I was at vet school, we used to talk sort of somewhere around 50% of animals, you know, having failure. Well, it's either way, isn't it? Either achieving or not achieving, um, getting colostrum. But I think it's improved a little bit, but it's still not great, is it? No. And so I think Emma Cuttins has been on your podcast mm. as well. And we did um, quite a bit of work before I left New Zealand. And we found that about a third of calves were suffering with failure of passive transfer on kiwi farms. And the numbers are fairly similar in Australia. The, mm. the most recent work that we've finished in Scotland and the North American figures comply with what we found in Scotland as well. They said it only at around 15%. So the kind of more intensive North American and European farms, some of them are doing a better job purely through, mm. you know, different management strategies and obviously they're not pasture-based systems yeah. but the thing to understand is that there is a huge range and um, it's very farm specific so when we looked at failure passive transfer on kiwi farms we found that some farms only had five percent of their calves with failure passive transfer and some farms had like 85 percent of their calves mm. with failure passive transfer so we always, as vets, we know that it's a very unique to an individual farm situation. And we saw that in the research, actually. So some people are doing a really good job and some people have a long way to go. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I guess maybe that gives us a little bit of a hint that there's a difference between the systems that, you know, the more intensive systems seem to be doing a better job. Because I suppose that the obvious question is, where's it going wrong? You know, what are we, what are we most commonly getting wrong? Which part of it seems to be where it's falling over the most? Well, so we know that a large proportion of the usually pooled colostrum that we sample in New Zealand is suboptimal in terms of bacteria counts and suboptimal in terms of IgG more than 90% of the samples that we collected from Kiwi farms had really high total bacter counts over the 100,000 colony forming units per mil threshold that the Americans set, really high coliform counts. And those are the real bad bugs that sort of block the uptake of IgG at the gut level. And the threshold the Americans set for that was 10,000 colony forming units per mil. And then when we tested those samples with the bricks, 
refractometer, and I'll get into that a little bit later mm. because I think it's it's a really important, useful sort of calf side instrument that farmers and vets can use to their advantage. We use BRICS refractometry as a kind of a rule of thumb or like a an indirect measure for IgG. Direct IgG testing is fairly costly and involves laboratory work. Mm. So mm. what we do with the BRICS refractometer, either get a digital one or an optical one, is you measure the total solids in the colostrum and the total solid in colostrum is mostly protein and most of that protein is IgG so it's a really good proxy and the beauty of the instrument is you can actually use it on the serum as well as on the colostrum so we've got we've set thresholds of about 22 percent on the bricks for colostrum and about eight and a half percent on the brick for serum so it's a dual purpose instrument and we know that when farmers test it, things improve. And when I was doing a lot of work with Kiwi farmers and vets, what we tended to see was that a lot of people muddled up what colostrum actually is. Mm. And colostrum is first milking production from the udder only. Mm. And the first milking that comes from the cow after she calves is really high in IgG. And it, it drops off really rapidly. So the second milking that you harvest from that cow is actually really quite low in IgG by comparison. And there seems to be a little bit of, well, there definitely was um, when I was working in New Zealand, a bit of confusion over what colostrum is because many farmers are holding the first sort of eight milkings at least out of, yes. the, out of supply. And they're saying, you know, well, that's colostrum. So yeah. we're going to feed that. But really, newborn calves within the first 12 hours of life, they need first milking colostrum only, not a mix, mm. not first milking mixed with second or third milking, not a pool of something that's maybe not all first milking, but first milking only. And that's really basic, but it's important to check when you're doing this type of calf health investigation as a vet, just check what newborn calves are actually getting. And then the other main problems that happen are that, you know, the time from calving to harvest is protracted or prolonged. And they've shown this in, in a lot of international research as well, that if you leave the cow for a long time after she's calved, before you harvest that colostrum for the first time, the IgG concentration declines in the udder and you'll get actually a lower quality product than you will if you harvest it really promptly after she calves. And then, but say you rush out and you, you see a cow calving and you immediately harvest that colostrum. If you leave it sitting in the bucket for probably more than six hours before you feed it to your calves, the IgG concentration will decline and the bacteria counts will skyrocket. Mm. So yeah. those timing factors are often poorly done. And then the farmers always pick the individual cow factors. So if there is a problem with failure of passive transfer on the farm, they will always say, well, maybe it's the, I'm putting heifers into the colostrum mm. supply, or maybe I'm like, maybe it's mm. the mastitis cows. And, and they definitely do play a role, but they're much further down the list. So definitely need to check it's first milking only, then get those timing factors right. And then, then check the individual cow selection or the colostrum donor cows, as I kind of like to call them. Um, and that includes, you know, vaccination and that sort of thing. So are the cows in, in good health? Are they vaccinated? 
are they giving the best quality product that they can for the calves? So I guess you're saying there that the quality of colostrum is probably the biggest factor. Yes, I think so. And I also think that, you know, what I've said about the the timing stuff is really important. Mm. So a farmer sees a cow calf, goes out, harvests that colostrum, and then feeds it promptly within the first, Mm. preferably within the first six hours of life. Because Mm. we struggle to get enough quality colostrum into these calves before the gut's lining. So the the neonatal enterocytes are permeable to large IgG molecules. And as time passes, the enterocytes mature and they become impermeable. So a lot of times calves will be fed too late. And um, if they have stood in the paddock and sucked, they often haven't had enough, either through calf vigor problems or maybe the cow hasn't stood for the calf to suck enough volume. So there's lots of moving parts to the situation, but we know from our research that the colostrum quality piece Mm. is poorly done. Mm. That membrane or the permeability of the enterocytes, I always think it's fascinating. I mean, ruminants, I mean, why on earth ruminants have come up with that system that's different from every other yeah. every other creature? Is there, Do we kind of know why that happens? It's um, to do with the placental construction. Mm. So ruminants have a syndesmochorial placenta, which means that IgG molecules don't pass freely from the dam to the fetus in utero. And they have this convoluted system to then confer immunity mm. after birth, unlike other species. So, yeah, it's definitely interesting, but it's a flawed system if you yeah. if you farm these animals the way we do. Well, and that's probably the point, isn't it? In, in nature, it generally works okay. But, of course, we've changed nature to some extent when we're farming them the way that we do, which is why this is probably letting us down. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just thinking... I needed you to have that explanation a few years ago. It's a little bit triggering. You've just reminded me of a conversation I had, or I don't even know if I'd call it a conversation, but years ago when I was working at another company, we did a campaign targeted at the calf rearers, knowing that most of the calf rearers are actually female. So this whole campaign was targeted at, at women and it involved a bit of traveling around doing educational sort of presentations. And so I ended up going up and doing this presentation in Dargaville. And Bernice Many was actually a guest speaker there. So, you know, and I, yeah. I was a bit of a, a fanboy because she's married to Dion Nash, who's one of my favourite cricketers. And, you know, so quite exciting from that point of view. And there's like 70 women there. So it was a really big event, you know, we're having at a pub. And Bernice was up speaking first and she did her talk. And then there was supposed to be a meal. And then I was supposed to talk, but the, the meal was late coming out. So we decided to carry on and just have me talk straight away. The problem was, though, that the meal hadn't come out, but the alcohol had. And so there's 70 women who have got who are drinking on empty stomachs and are absolutely smashed by the time I got up to, oh, to do no. my talk. So, And I'm the sole male in the room with 70 drunk women, um, <laughs> which is... <laughs> so I, and it didn't start well. I stood up there to start, and one of the women yelled out, oh, the strippers arrived. Um, so, um, she didn't. She did, yeah. So I started doing the talk and I and I got onto this discussion about passive transfer and the difference between, you know, and the fact that calves need, you know, can only get their immunity through the colostrum. And this woman in the front row starts arguing with me, says, that's not true. And I was like, well, it, it is. She said, no, it's not. Like, yes, it is. And she said, I'm a nurse and they get it across the placenta. I'm like, yeah, but 
like humans are different We're from human. from calves and and like she just wouldn't let it go she just kept heckling me and then the whole thing just deteriorated and they all started talking and like you know it was just a yeah so my kind of like you know fanboy moment of Bernice Manny being there and all this kind of stuff it just it just it descended into very, trauma quite quickly yeah, tra- <laughs> yeah, it's very triggering you start talking passive transfer and all that stuff it's quite um yeah oh, no, anyway that's a, that's a real diversion <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was my attempt at explaining passive transfer didn't go quite as well as yours did I think so <laughs> we're very good at going off on tangents but I guess we know what we're supposed to do. We know that it doesn't always work. Do we have some good measures of what the effects are on calves when they don't get good passive transfer? Do we have some sort of nice numbers off the top of our heads that we could use? Yeah, there's a little bit of international published research on this. And again, I cite Emma Cattens' PhD because she looked at mortality variation between farms and she found like I already said, there was a lot of variation between farms. So they attributed a lot of the variation in calf mortality on New Zealand farms to the variation in FPT Mm. on these farms as well. So there were some more sort of direct studies internationally where they found that they were twice as likely to get pneumonia in the first three months of age if they have FPT. And they could attribute about 40% of the deaths to low serum IgG in North America. So actually the measures that we use and in calves, um, the kind of magic number for serum IgG concentration is 10 grams per liter. That was based on some mortality measure work. So below that threshold, calves are more likely to die. But it's worth saying, actually, that they had a panel of experts get together and publish a paper which attempted to refine the serum IgG measures and categorize them in a less binary way. So you could have, you know, poor, fair, good, excellent, rather Mm. than the kind of bad, good. Now, in my work and for most vets, it's much easier to communicate a more binary measure and I still think that that 10 grams per liter is really relevant and useful in our daily work when we we're looking at at calf health problems but the the paper was published by Lombard et al if people are interested in looking at those refined threshold measures Mm. but it's a forever evolving peace as you can imagine yeah absolutely yeah so there was an interesting thing you said in there about the mortality rates being affected up to three months of age we tend to think of failure of passive transfer as being something that affects them in that first two or three weeks or so but actually sometimes it's those older calves still have higher mortality rates don't they even post weaning you're still seeing some issues so i mean you've already said it is amazing that nature has created this convoluted situation Mm. where the animals have to absorb IgG through their guts. But what's even more amazing is that what happens to those neonatal calves in the first 24 hours of life has such far-reaching implications for them Mm. in terms of that sort of immediate calfhood morbidity and mortality, but then also growth rates and even conception rates and lactation. So the productivity and the reproductive efficiency of calves that have suffered from FPT as as really small animals 
in the first 24 hours of life is massive and mm. it's really hard to get your head around that actually um but the work is there and the, you know it's been shown mm, yeah you're right and maybe that's one of the messages to farmers this is just how long term the impacts of this are like how how important all of that work that goes in the short term and it's obviously a tricky time of year you know to be putting all of that effort in but maybe we need to get better at emphasizing the long-term gains they get from it yeah and i think you've really touched on a, on something that's really important for the kiwi seasonal s- systems and w- what we we found when we measured colostrum quality as the season progressed was that as people became more tired and um, the attention to detail in terms of bacterial contamination of colostrum they elevated you know we we sample colostrum at point of feeding in the early mid and late season and we saw that in the late season things began to slide because people were just over it by then so mm, it, mm. it's a really important point and really specific to a seasonal calving system yeah it's actually a very good point because we often i mean i think we're all familiar with seeing the scours starting to turn up you know all the diseases the various diseases starting to turn up to towards the end of the calving season you know and and the theory's always been, oh, there's a build-up of pathogens, which is probably a part of it, but also there's probably a slide in the, in the passive transfer that's contributing to that too, isn't there? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. definitely a double-edged sword, and mm. we've definitely seen that. So, mm, Yeah. Right, so we've already sort of talked a wee bit about the colostrum stuff, but I guess if we're thinking we know how important that colostrum is, and the first thing is the cow's got to make decent colostrum, right? So... How do we make sure that she is producing the best colostrum we can possibly get? Yeah, so I have to sound a bit like a broken record here because time to harvest is so important. Mm. So even if you have the perfect sort of situation, the perfect colostrum donor animal, if you leave her for a long time after she calves, her colostrum quality will be poorer than it that otherwise would be. Mm. But in terms of the individual cow, selection criteria i would refer the practically minded clinician to a really nice review article by sandra godden she wrote the article originally in 2008 and then reviewed it in 2019 and goes into a lot of detail about which cows should be you know the the optimal colostrum donors and things like breed age nutrition in the prepartum period, vaccination status, dry period length, um, and diseases. So you can imagine what those relationships look like. But again, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, each individual farm situation is unique. And I wouldn't recommend, for example, that um, a farmer blithely throws out colostrum from heifers because the Godden article has said that heifers may produce lower quality colostrum than their older counterparts, because that might not be the case on that individual farm. And that's really important to reiterate. Um, You need to measure it to make sure that you've got what you need. And if not, then you need to make tweaks to your system. And I've already said as well that, you know, another big aspect of, of this is that we're seeing on Northern Hemisphere farms often we have a lapse in colostrum volume production. So we did some work on that recently and the dry period length was really vital. Cows that were dried off uh, within 60 days of calving produced 
far less colostrum than animals that had a longer time to recover and get, prepare for calving. But obviously that depends on nutrition prepartum mm. and the ability to feed these animals. And we also, interestingly, we saw an effect on temperature, so daily temperature differential. If there was a big difference between the minimal and maximum temperature during the day, that affected the ability of the animal to produce, well, there was an association with an animal not producing as much colostrum or first milking colostrum. So there's a bit of work being done in North America on that. There's a PhD student who's working on that stuff. And it's sort of an emerging area because we need enough of the high quality colostrum, first milking colostrum. There's no point in mm. focusing just on IgG and Bacto counts. We actually need a good amount of it as well to be able to feed these animals 10 to 15% of their body weight in the first 12 hours of life. So what that looks like for, you know, maybe a 40 kilo calf, if you had a big calf, four to six mm. liters, something like that, of first milking colostrum is quite a lot. Mm, mm. Yeah, there's a couple of things I'm just thinking there. So from what you're saying, potentially slightly lower quality colostrum from, say, you know, younger animals or you know, animals that are not necessarily your first choice to produce the best quality colostrum put in promptly and used quickly is probably better than delayed feeding and, you know, and not just delayed from the calf point of view, but the storage of the colostrum I get and the potential deterioration and quality of the colostrum. And so potentially you're better off getting fresh stuff from a slightly inferior cow and then good stuff from a really good cow that's a little bit too late, right? Is that yeah, right? In terms of in terms of the absorption of the of the yeah. calf, yes. But you can overcome Say you measured the colostrum quality and it was less than 22% on the bricks. Mm. You could theoretically feed more of that right. to your neonatal calf within the time frame because mm. the kind of rule of thumb is that they need about 200 grams of IgG. So if your colostrum is 22% on the bricks, which is 50 grams per liter, they need, say, four liters of that. But if your colostrum is lower quality, you could theoretically overcome that low quality by feeding more volume. But the problem is that, you know, sometimes, especially in Scotland, people won't have the volume because mm. we're in an all-year-round calving system rather than mm. a seasonal calving mm. system. So it just depends where you are in your unique farming system. Yeah, I guess that's one of the advantages of New Zealand is that we do have that ability to sort of pool those first milking yeah. colostrum, I suppose. So Yeah. A word though on pooling, of of mm. course there are risks to pooling colostrum. Yes. And it has been shown quite comprehensively that if you feed pooled colostrum, you're more likely to feed a more contaminated first milking product to your calf. And also you run the risk of diluting out really good quality mm. IgG colostrum with lesser quality IgG colostrum and you run the risk of transferring pathogens nasty pathogens like urinary disease mm. mycoplasma mm. potentially salmonella that sort of thing yeah so there are risks to it but in a New Zealand system where you're flooded with colostrum first milking mm. colostrum from lots of cows calving simultaneously over 90% of farms pool colostrum so mm. Mm. While we know there are risks to that, it has to be feasible. So you sort of work to minimize the risk of that by testing the pool 
before you feed it neonatal calves and then think about how you might be able to increase the IgG concentration if it's low, for example, by harvesting colostrum, say, more promptly from your cows after mm. they calve by mm. feeding, say, the calves have FPT, maybe you need to feed them more promptly. And then also, sometimes people will consider pasteurization units, actually, to tackle the pathogen load issue. It, the capital cost of those units is still quite prohibitive to a lot of farmers because they can't see, you know, that there's going to be massive benefits to forking out thousands or whatever it, it costs for a large unit that can take a large pool of colostrum all at once but they are reducing in price and some farms here install them and they sort of see it as a kind of silver bullet which will solve all their pathogen transfer problems but like everything pasteurization units are subject to human error so they're definitely not a silver bullet and sometimes they can make the situation worse because the attention to detail um, in terms of hygiene, scrubbing the buckets and the feeders with hot, soapy water and detergent, like just washing up liquid, the farmers tend to think, and this applies internationally, they tend to think that, oh, well, we're just going to pasteurize it, so it's probably okay. Mm. Um, but many of the pathogens in colostrum are quite resistant to heat treatment. You can't heat colostrum to a really high temperature because it cleaves the IgG molecule. Yeah. So you can only heat it to 60 degrees. So that means that you won't kill all the Yoni's disease in colostrum if it's there. And so what I'm saying in a long-winded way <laughs> is that pasteurizers don't solve the problem. You still need to pick that low-hanging fruit by making sure your attention to detail using hot water and fairy liquid or washing up liquid and a scrubbing brush on all of your kind of storage and feeding equipment and vessels is so important. And when I asked some Kiwi farmers whether they washed their feeding equipment, they said, oh, yes, we, we wash the feeders and watch them wash them. And they were swishing cold water through them. And, you know, colostrum is really fatty. And so you would have this kind of scummy fatty residue left because they hadn't even used hot water and then of course you need to scrub it and it takes time and people feel that they're busy and that they, mm, they can't mm. get that sort of attention well i'm interested in it i mean you've made the comment about the contamination a couple of times and about the bacteria directly and i'm paraphrasing you a bit but directly sort of blocking the immunoglobulin so what's the mechanism of that how how's it actually happening so there's a few theories on it. People think that the bacteria sort of block the channels, the uptake channels that the IgG molecules use to be absorbed into the bloodstream, or they bind to the IgG molecule and make it too large to be able to mm. be absorbed through the actum uptake channels, or they increase the rate at which the enterocytes mature. Yeah. So the calf can't absorb IgG much quicker than it otherwise would you know that it becomes a sort of impermeable gut much faster yeah the latter one perhaps makes sense because there's a reason that the gut is impermeable and adults to stop that kind of thing from happening so yes, i suppose absolutely. maybe there's a you know and, and it's a risky thing to have a gut that is permeable for the short term i suppose so i guess that maybe nature is going 
oh crap you know there's there's a whole lot of other stuff coming in here the risk has got too great and start shutting the permeability down more quickly yeah and we see in scarring calves you know that bacteremia rapidly progressing to septicemia where the mm. gut is really even if it's a viral cause initially and calves become pyrexic as a secondary sort of bacterial problem yeah so have we covered everything on colostrum because I, I guess i'm thinking we're, <laughs> we've got this sort of how do we make sure the colostrum is good enough quality and then once we know we've got good quality colostrum i suppose the next step is how do we make sure that we get enough of it into the calves or is there anything else we need to cover on colostrum itself I think what we haven't touched on yet is Mm. I've alluded to these kind of timing factors being really important. So we're in a sort of ticking time bomb situation across the board. So we've got the calf's gut becoming impermeable over time. Mm. We've got the IgG concentration declining in the cow's udder with time. We've got the IgG concentration declining with time in the bucket that the colostrum is sitting in before it's actually fed to the calves. And at that latter stage, there are things that kiwi farmers can do because they do have a lot of colostrum produced simultaneously. And often the colostrum will sit in huge vats for mm. long periods before it's fed to calves. And we did some work uh, looking at potassium sorbate uh, chemical preservation So there are a number of ways to preserve colostrum. And by preserve, I mean keep the IgG concentrations high and the bacteria levels low. Mm. And we can use low temperature to do that, but then you need loads of fridges and freezers Mm. or one giant one. And you have to keep the colostrum at 4 degrees C if you refrigerate it. And you have to keep it at minus 20 if you freeze it, which is quite a low temperature. And a lot of times in seasonal calving systems, people don't use low temperature to preserve colostrum because there's just too much volume of it to be doing that. So Gemma Chuck in Australia started talking to me a number of years ago about using potassium sorbate, which is a human grade food preservative that they use in the cheese and wine production industry. And you can use that safely to preserve colostrum for feeding to calves. And we looked at it in the lab and we found that it it was really effective, even at ambient temperatures, at keeping the bacteria counts reasonably low and keeping the IgG concentrations sort of reasonably high. But the caveat to that is if you put a really dirty colostrum into a vat, it's always going to be dirty. So you've got to get it as clean as you possibly can before you try and preserve it with potassium sorbate, because again, it's not a silver bullet, but it did work really well. And the interesting part was that it worked really well, even at ambient temperatures. So you didn't need, you know, huge fridges or freezers to go along with the potassium sorbate if you wanted to use it to keep your colostrum good for feeding to baby calves, neonatal calves. I guess there are other ways of storing colostrum as well, and we probably don't want to go too deep into it. I suppose the yogurtizing and formalin and those types of things. Have, oh, we know, can talk about that. We can talk about <laughs> that. So we, when we started looking at what people were using to preserve colostrum in New Zealand, we were, I think horrified is not too strong a word, <laughs> that people were using a lot of really carcinogenic products mm. like formalin, hydrogen peroxide, other really mm. caustic 
things to preserve colostrum. Well, my father and, used formalin when he was rearing calves, so yeah. Yes, and I'm absolutely <laughs> sure that it's very effective, but it probably isn't the best uh, <laughs> no. solution. <laughs> so the beauty of potassium salt is that it is this sort of safe food grade product, and we can use it with a clear conscience. Mm. Uh, it's interesting that you bring up Ezio lactobacillus cultures mm. because they were really fashionable and we tested them and they didn't work. So yeah. while the idea yeah. of it is really nice, the potassium sorbate was much more effective than the yogurt cultures were, which, you know, I think was a shame in a way because I think a lot of people were using Ezio and they yeah. were, mm. you know, they anecdotally thought that it, it was doing a reasonable job, but the potassium sorbate was much more effective. Mm. Okay. I wasn't actually aware of that. So it's really good information for me anyway so mm -hmm. so right we've figured out exactly how to get the colostrum right now so that's good but we've also got to make sure that we get the administration right so i suppose that comes down to things like i mean should we be doing things like tubing every cup or you know how much do we rely on on the calf to manage this itself so any thoughts on all of that sort of stuff Yes, of course I have thoughts. Well, <laughs> yes, okay. Thoughts. You've got thoughts on everything, Katie. So, yeah, that's probably a silly question. <laughs> so, I think it's really interesting that when we looked at associations between tubing and FPT in calves in New Zealand, we found that tubing was associated with a higher rate of FPT. But the reason for that was that the quality of the product that the farmers were tubing, the quality of the first milking colostrum, which wasn't necessarily first milking colostrum, mm. that the farmers were tubing was so poor that the calves still got FPT. Yeah. So when you think about what tubing does is it takes the guesswork out of, we talk about the three cues of colostrum management, right? So you've got the quality of colostrum, which we've mm. talked about ad infinitum so the antibody concentration and the bacteria count then you've got the, the second cue which is quickly mm. and the calves need to get that colostrum within the first six to 12 hours of life and then you've got the quantity which the calves need to get 10 to 15 percent of their body weight in colostrum in the first six to 12 hours of life and then there's these other two kind of more nebulous cues that people talk about and they are quietly which means you don't stress the animal out when you're mm. administering the colostrum mm. and a very tenuous one which kind of i think falls into quality squeaky clean <laughs> which is not a cue at all so it isn't when you think about what tubing does it takes the quickly and the quantity question out of the equation that's a lot of keywords because you get the right amount of colostrum into the calf at the right time. And you know you do because you give it by tube. But you need to make sure that the quality is good. And there is actually some work to show that the absorption of IgG when you tube calves is not as good as when you teat feed calves. Mm. But more recent research shows that there's no difference. Okay. And the other thing that's worth mentioning is that there's an obvious time advantage in a seasonal kiwi system to feeding calves with a tube because you've got lots of calves born on the same day. You need to get this 
high quality colostrum into them as quickly as you can. And the, the quickest way to do that is to tube them. Mm. So it is very much, I've said this twice already and I'll say it again, it's very much a farm specific decision. Yeah. And there is absolutely no point in as a vet standing on your parapet and preaching to your farmers about tube feeding because you think that that's the right thing to do because it might simply not work for their system. So I'm not advocating for tubing being the be all and end all because it isn't, but I'm just simply pointing out some of the advantages of it and it may work for some systems and I can see the benefits for a seasonal cabin system. Mm. Okay, so getting that into them, I mean, we sort of talked about the time frame, the last of the queues, I suppose, the quickly, is that the last one? It was one of them. So we've got 12 hours, and it's not like there's a sort of snapping shut quickly. Aren't they starting to close from around six hours, those channels? And then it's sort of yeah. like they're gradually getting less and less permeable as time mm-hmm. goes by. So Yeah, so Darian Z did... A small study which looked at what the IgG concentration in calf serum was at birth versus 12 hours. And when they fed them at 12 hours, they had about half the concentration of serum IgG as the ones that were fed really commonly after birth. So it's, as you say, it's not, it's a gradual effect. The the channels don't snap shut. It's Mm. a, a very sort of, it's a more insidious thing, but it's definitely, important to get that colostrum into them in the first 12 hours in intensive house systems and for example in china or north america they even they cut that back to six hours and they're really very strict about that mm. uh, but we again we need to be mindful of the practicalities of that in a kiwi system well, and that, I, that means picking up four times a day, probably. Yes. To make sure they're inside. Yes. And that's exactly what I was going to say. So mm. oftentimes it's a matter of discussing with your clients whether you go down the, the track of twice a day pickup rather than once a day pickup because of mm. the labor implications of that. But a twice a day pickup will obviously make a massive difference to the timing factors that we've discussed and, and mm. will probably a much better outcome for the calves. And I think one of the from memory from talking to Emma that I guess the important thing is that if you are picking up twice a day the quality of what's going in I mean you know coming back to probably repeating ourselves for probably the fourth or fifth time but you know if you are picking up twice a day and you are tubing them that they're probably better off being picked up once a day if you're giving them crappy colostrum um, when you pick them up probably better off having mm-hmm. that opportunity to have a natural feed within the time frame even if they're on the mum for 24 hours than being picked up early and getting crappy colostrum shoved down their throats yeah I guess, is that- so it's back to again this kind of unique farm system because on some farms if the calves are left with their dams they may actually have a really good natural feed and they may get you know all the igg absorbed that they need but that doesn't happen on every farm and there are many reasons that, you know, that there may be calf weakness, dystocia, some reason that they don't stand or that small volumes are ingested from the mother on some farms. But there's definitely an increasing body of research. I know Emma's been thinking about why that might be the case on New Zealand farms, because mm. the original study by Westland in the late 90s showed that when they left calves on their dams, 
about half of them had FPT. And I think mm. everybody knows that work. But, you know, maybe that's not actually representative of what's happening now. And I think on some farms, we probably are getting a much better result than that. So mm. it's, it's very unique and you have to tailor your management. You really have to measure and monitor and decide what the best course of action is based on an individual farm situation. Yeah. And then I suppose I think we've probably given a pretty good template for what is the best way to do it. The next thing is just figuring out if we've got it right. So that measuring of failure of passive transfer of FPT. So, And there's been a bit of movement on that. I know some of your work, what I saw you present at the Bariatrics Congress, for example, like how we actually get that measurement right, what the best ways are. So, Yeah, so I've sort of already said that the direct measures of IgG can be challenging because they require lab testing, which has a long turnaround time. Some of the tests are expensive, mm. technically demanding. And so we use indirect measures of IgG as a proxy. And there are many options for that. So the ones that we probably talk about the most and probably which are the most relevant are BRICS refractometry and total protein. Mm. And those tests are estimating the IgG concentration in a sample. And the BRICS refractometer is a kind of dual purpose device where you can use it on serum and colostrum. Mm. And it's fairly well correlated with IgG concentration. And the optical ones are very cheap to buy on Amazon, eBay, anywhere you want to get them. And so a lot of farmers are using that because it's easy to do and it's cast side and it's quick. And uh, when we did the work actually in New Zealand, we did a similar comparison testing study. And we found that total protein for calf serum is really highly correlated to uh, IgG concentration in the serum, even more so than BRICS. But then, of course, BRICS is a dual-purpose device, so there's an advantage there. Mm. And then Scott found the same. So we looked at which test was best if you were going to use a blood test on a calf to decide whether it's got FPT. And the way you do that is you need, obviously, a representative sample. You need calves to be between 24 hours old and seven days old. Mm. And you need at least a dozen of them in that age range. Now, that's a kind of arbitrary figure that, you know, it's been published, but I'm not really sure where it's come from. A dozen, regardless of your farm size. It's a good rule of thumb, a good place to start. It's probably similar, I suppose. I mean, we talk about sample size for like liver coppers and that sort of thing these days and you know we used to do sort of five or six but we're now talking needing 15 i think so yes. so yeah it's yes. in the same sort of range isn't it that you actually yes. need a decent enough number to get a you need a decent enough number yeah. and in all year round calving systems a lot of veterinary clinicians are guilty of hanging their hats on very small sample oh, yes. numbers because yes. there are very few calves that fall in that age range but we don't have that issue in new zealand because we have a lot of calves that are less than old usually when you sort of take a snapshot of what's actually happening on the farm because you can you know you can go on any given day in the spring and and hopefully get those numbers and so you could have a really good idea of what the colostrum IgG concentration is and what the serum IgG concentration is using a BRICS refractometer right then and there on the farm and you could, if you wanted to, take blood and if you knew the colostrum was okay and you wanted to do a slightly more accurate test, you could do total protein testing on the serum just as easily and it's quite cheap mm. to run. Mm. So the old GGT and zinc sulfate turbidity tests and those types of things just a kind of waste of time? 
Well, we had a bit of a breakthrough. Actually. We've lowered the threshold for ZST testing in Scotland. They used to say that 20 units was the kind of magic number, but uh, the Irish work that's been done by Hogan uh, showed that we should lower it to about 12. And mm. in Scotland, we need to lower it to 15. A lot of clinicians are still using ZST, but it's a really archaic test mm. where you read newspaper print through the sample and all sorts of witchcraft. <laughs> so yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. It's really not as accurate as TP and BRICS testing. Okay. And GGT, it does work. Winston Mason and Emma Cuttons and Richard Laven and I did some work on that exact test because some clinicians in New Zealand like to use GGT, but what we found was that it was really age correlated. So hmm. oftentimes when you go out to a pen of calves, the farmer might not know without looking up his records if a calf is one day old, two days old, three days old. But that is vitally important for the GGT testing measure uh, is only accurate really if you know the exact age of the calf because mm. it varies as the calf ages. Yeah, GGT was what I used when I was in practice, and I yeah, actually I, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> and I can remember. Yeah, you get you get the results back, and you'd realise that actually I should have got all the birth dates of all of these before, yes. and you're trying to get it off the farmer afterwards, and it's just a yes. nightmare. So yeah. exactly, it's yeah. it's not practical. So yeah, yeah. Oh, so I think we've maybe covered everything on that front. Is there anything else you think is really important before we wrap up? Because it's probably getting it's getting late in Glasgow. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's near my bedtime. So I've already alluded to some of the more recent work that we're doing and that the North Americans are doing on low colostrum yields. And mm. I think that's a really interesting emerging area of research for colostrum management. But the other really important and interesting area of emerging research is extended colostrum feeding. And we talked a bit about what the definition of colostrum is. And strictly speaking, colostrum is first milking only. Mm. But we a lot of gold colostrum occasionally. Gold colostrum, Zealand, which exactly. Is quite a, yeah, I think maybe for farmers, that's a nice term that they can grasp. Yeah. With, so, yeah. Yes. Mm. And then there's this other kind of excretion from the other, which is milking two to maybe eight. Mm. And it's called transition milk. And that's the milk. The colostrum to milk transition period as the IgG declines and the fat declines and it becomes more sort of normal milk. And a lot of the work is focusing on whether there's an advantage of feeding either an extended amount of first milking colostrum or colostrum supplement to calves or transition milk in an extended way. So typically in places where milk replacer is fed commonly, commercial milk replacer is fed commonly, farmers will feed first milk and colostrum only and then immediately switch the calves onto milk replacer. And what we want to understand is, is there an advantage to feeding transition milk for a number of days before they switched onto milk replacer? And the main sort of outcomes would, of course, be those calfhood morbidity and mortality mm. measures that we've discussed but also growth rates mm. in the pre-weaning period. So do the calves get sick more, die more, and grow poorly if they're immediately switched onto milk replacer rather than transitioned onto milk replacer through this transition milk feeding, which still does provide some IgG 
although it won't be absorbed into the bloodstream, there may be some advantage at the gut level of that IgG molecule. And also the transition milk is higher. It's a more nutritive product. So it's higher in energy Mm. and it should be really good for them. So we're doing a little bit of work on that and it takes a long time to enroll calves in an all year round calving system, as you can Mm. imagine. So Mm. just in the throes of doing some stuff with that. And, uh, you know, it's been shown in, in other places that there is an advantage to feeding colostrum in a prolonged manner. But the question is, what does that mean practically? How long do we have to feed it for? Is transition milk enough? Or is it that we need to feed first milk and colostrum in an extended way? Can we use colostrum supplements? Not all colostrum supplements are created equal, of course. Mm. And the cheaper products won't provide as much IgG as the more expensive ones will, because like everything, you get what you pay for. Hmm. So there's a lot of questions around that and what that looks like for managing calves in a system where milk replacer is the sort of linchpin of rearing them. Yeah, that'd be really interesting, because obviously quite a lot of New Zealand farmers are doing an extended feeding of colostrum with stored sort of, I will use the term uh, transition milk, I think from from now on, that's something I've learned yes. in the UK too, that we call it transition milk rather than colostrum. But yeah, you know, there's a lot of New Zealand farmers that do that for quite an extended period. So yeah, it'd be interesting to find out whether there is actually a benefit to that. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. to see that. Cool. Well, we could talk for a long time, I'm sure, but we probably do need to wrap up at some point. So it's sort of coming back to the beginning. I mean, it's in theory quite simple, but the practicality of it i guess it, you know it, it does fall over of course getting passive transfer right in carbs so i suppose just to, to reiterate the really really crucial things that make the biggest difference if you really had to focus on just a few central messages what would they be well i think from the point of view of communicating with clients about colostrum management it has to be those three cues mm. so the quality quickly and the quantity Mm. and within those three cues there's all manner of different sort of moving parts but with the quality you're really looking at maximizing igg concentration and and that looks like feeding first milk and colostrum in a timely way harvested in a timely way and fed in a timely way keeping the bacteria counts really low by scrupulously clean hygiene practices Mm. and then in terms of quickly does that mean you need a tube feeder to get these calves fed within the first six to 12 hours of life? Or can you do that by teat feeding them? What does that look like for your system? Mm. And have you got enough of this really high quality product to feed to neonatal calves? You know, have you got enough to be feeding four to six liters to a 40 kilo calf, for example? Mm. Or, you know, if you've got Jersey calves, then just make that tailored to your own system. And I've said this before, but there is no one size fits all approach and you need to monitor and measure. So there is no point in going out to a farm with a preconceived idea of what's going to solve all his problems. You have to invest. I say invest in inverted commas because they really are very cheap. Buy a Brick's refractometer, put it in the back of your truck, test some colostrum. If you're farm is feeding pooled colostrum you really only need to test one or two days worth of it to get a good idea of what's actually going on there 
use the Brix refractometer, take some red top tubes and allow them to clot. You don't even need to spin them. Let, let them clot, let the serum separate off naturally. Take mm. a bit of that, a few drops on your Brix refractometer and a large enough number of calves at different time points throughout the season because the situation might change. That's exactly what I there was going to say. There is nothing mm. more powerful than data. Mm. So you're not going to precipitate change unless you're measuring and monitoring. And then mm. you can tailor your advice to the specific unique farming system that you're dealing with. Mm. That's awesome. I think that is a really nice summary. Well, I think that's been really helpful. Like I've already said, there's a couple of things I've already learned, so or more than a couple. <laughs> that's um, good. No, that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Katie. And thank you for giving up your evening. You're welcome. I'll let you get off. And, and I've, I've probably got to go to work. Um, <laughs> for well, you. Actually, well, <laughs> I suppose technically this is work. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's been a very helpful chat and really appreciate your time. So, so thank you very much, Katie. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Vet Chat NZ, proudly brought to you by Burbank. If you made it this far, we'd love to hear your feedback and any ideas you might have for future episodes. If you'd like to get in touch, please email matt.wells at verbac.co.nz or call 0800 verbac.